Well, welcome, welcome, and Merry Christmas. We are, um, if you're a guest, we're glad you're here this morning. Um, please turn your Bibles to Luke 23. We're going to be uh, in one of my favorite passages of Scripture this morning. Um, it, it's been said, it has been said that that the cross is is the Mount Everest of Scripture, and I agree. It is the Mount Everest of, of Scripture. And as I was telling the preach team yesterday, I think this story for me is kind of, just for me, I'm, this is my opinion, but it's, it's kind of like the peak of Mount Everest. I, I love this story. I, I feel like, to me, as, as I look upon Christ in this story, I, I, just, I just see Christ in all His glory. I see Christ at His best. And I'm sure you could probably come up with something better and argue it, and I'd probably agree with you. I, I, but I, I think this, this story we're going to read about this morning is, is one of the greatest stories in all of the Bible. And it's, and it's simple, but yet it's so deep. Just the depth and the riches. We could preach this, this text for, for the next month. And we, and we, it'd be, we, couldn't, we couldn't get every ounce of water out of the sponge if we tried. We, we could focus in on certain words here. And, and, and just preach a whole sermon on individual words and the theology that just springs forth from, from some, of these, some of these verses. And we, and we just we could go for a long, long time. I love it. But it's very simple. And you know, as I begin to preach this sermon this morning, I'm, I'm reminded of, of this time of year. There's a lot of things that we love about this time of year. We could spend all day talking about all the different things. Like you might love, you might love the, the, the festivities of Christmas and the lights, and that's good. I do too. I love the, the food too much, a little bit. But a, a lot of us, this is, this is the best time of year for, for something a little different. It's like the best sports time of, of the year. <laughs> I know that's shallow. I'm sorry. I admit that. But you think about it, like all that's going on right now, you've got, you've got basketball going on, you've got, you've got football going on. Some of, some of you in here might care about the World Cup. I used to until like about 48 hours ago. But it's a fun time of the year. I, I, I don't know if you watched the game the other night, TCU versus Kansas State. Like, I think we would all agree. It was a great game. Was it not? Did you watch it? You would agree it was a great game. And what made it a great game in your mind? It, 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 if you didn't watch it, I'll just tell you, it made it a great game because it was like a last-second victory. It was until like, you go through this whole game, and at the very end, they, 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 like, they win. They just walk, you know, they win at the very last second. And there's something about sports that what, 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 what characterizes a great game in many of our minds is a great ending. We love these games. We, we, we love games where, you know, they, they walk off the court, the last shot, and they win. They, they walk off in victory. And then we're down, and all of a sudden, at the most, you know, inopportune time, all of a sudden, they, they make a victory shot, and they, they just win. They heave it up there, and they win. You think about, maybe you think about, you know, Christian Leitner in the early 90s. I know I'm dating myself here, playing, you know, as Duke played, you know, Michigan and and. 
they've got this last second shot to win. You know, Grant Hill, he heaves it down the, he heaves it down the court of Christian Leitner who, who makes a, a last minute shot and they win the, the NCAA championship. It's, if you watch March Madness, you see that's one of the, the, the constant, you know, uh, replays that they'll show in the, in the commercials is one of the greatest moments in college basketball history. Or maybe you might recall that moment where, where Michael Jordan's facing the Utah Jazz in, in 1998 and he gets the ball, you know, he kind of pushes off a bit, he makes the shot, and then they win their third consecutive championship. We could go on and on and on about these moments that we remember. We remember these, these last-second victories. You, you, you know, you don't remember the, the victories that are, you know, it was just a lopsided game from the first quarter, and then it just midway through the season, nobody ever recalls it again. You just don't remember it. You remember those stories that are, that are last minute. There's something about our hearts that, that, that love such stories. And this morning, we see one of those stories. We see a last minute victory of sorts. As we gaze upon this criminal who was on his deathbed, but comes to know Christ in the last dying moments of his life. This is an exciting story. My main point this morning is this. That Christ's victory on the cross brings forth victory to all those who die to self and follow Christ. That Christ's victory on the cross brings forth victory to all those who die to self and follow Christ. Hopefully you've made your way to Luke chapter 23. I've got a few verses this morning, verses 39 through 43. Please follow along as I read. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. May God bless the reading of his word. Main point this morning, Christ's victory on the cross brings forth victory to all those who die to self and follow Christ. Point one. We cannot come to Christ on our own terms. We cannot come to Christ on our own terms. You know, it's, it, Matt, Matt did a good job of, of preaching about Christ being put on the cross last week. If you, if you didn't hear that message, I, I suggest you go back and, and listen to it. And, and, and honestly, this, this message is nothing more than a continuation of, of that message. And, and Tom's message next Sunday is nothing more of a continuation of this message, and this is, we're, we're spending several weeks kind of zeroing in on the cross, and, and it is quite the understatement of a lifetime to say this, that, that the cross was a place of great agony. It was a place of great agony. It was a, it was a place of, of great shame. And I'm not just talking here, most of the time when we, when we think about the cross and we consider the cross what we think about is the physical pain that Christ suffered, right? 
We, we, we think about the nails that were through his hands and we think about what it would feel like for, for nails maybe to go through our hands. We, we think about you know, him getting stripped and, and beaten and, and we think about what that would feel like and the pain of that and it would hurt. It certainly would hurt. I mean, it was a very painful process. It was a very excruciating process. But, but the cross wasn't just a difficult place for Jesus physically. It wasn't just physical torment or, or physical torture. The cross was, was, was deep. Just remember for a moment that, that Jesus is a man, and, and Jesus is a man in, in every sense, in the way that you're a man or you're a woman. He's, he's a human. He had flesh. He was, he was 100% man. And so every emotion that, that, that you would feel, every struggle that, that you would feel on the cross, Christ felt on the cross. The cross was, was a place of emotional agony. The cross was a, was a place of, of mental agony. The cross was a, a place of spiritual agony. It was, it was the, the pinnacle of, of suffering. And, and not only that, but we, we consider the fact that, that Jesus, he was sinless. Imagine how much more the suffering is for the sinless Son of God, to be placed upon the cross and bear the weight of something He did not do. As Jesus was placed on the cross, He experienced absolutely nothing but ridicule. Nothing. Nothing but ridicule. As, as consider it for a moment, is that the cross where we don't hear the Father's comforting words to the Son. We might recall from Jesus' baptism that, that, that what, what, what did the Father say? He looked down and He said what? This is my Son, whom I'm well pleased. We might consider the, the Mount of Transfiguration, which we preached about probably a year ago, where, where, where God's, He says, this is my Son. Listen to Him. We, we see the Father all throughout the gospel, in times uh, giving approval to the Son, but here on the cross, the Father is, is, is not encouraging the Son. Rather, what is He doing? He is pouring His full wrath out on His Son, and it pleased the Father to do so. It is at the cross, friends, where Jesus' closest friends, they've scattered in their heart, they no longer desire to be associated with Him. They're fearful. They're embarrassed. They're gone. They've left him, they have left Him to die alone. It, 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 is, it is at the cross where God's chosen people, the Israelites, the one who the, who, who the Father promised that He would send the Messiah to, to redeem Israel, the one where, where Christ came and served and, and revealed Himself as the Messiah in every way, shape, and form, completely fulfilling all that the Bible would tell them that the, that the Messiah would be. He reveals Himself as that. And he, and he serves humbly, and He serves mercifully, and He's gracious, and He's kind, and, he, and all of these things. He comes, and for the people that he, that, that, he, that he came to minister to, what do they do? They choose Barabbas. They yell, crucify Him. Crucify Him. Crucify Him. It, 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 is, it is at the cross where 
the religious leaders, those who were supposed to lead Israel in, in, in the word, in the teaching of the word. It is, it is at the cross where these religious leaders in, in verse 35, where they mock him. Luke 23, 35. Where they mock him. They, they say stuff like, he saved others. He saved others. Yeah, yeah he, he, he healed that blind guy. He made, he made the paralytic walk. He healed that disease. He, rose, he, he, he helped this person raise from the dead. But it's probably just the works of Satan. Let him save himself if he's really the Messiah. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, which he's not. See, they, they, they mocked his claim to be the Messiah. But it, it wasn't just Israel. It wasn't just the religious leaders. We also see in verse 36 that, that the Roman soldiers mocked him. You know, they gave him sour wine and told him to save himself if he was the king of the Jews. You know, you read other accounts and you see what was, what was written above Jesus' head, often on the cross. It, it, you know, they would, they would place a placard above your head that basically would say what you were guilty of. It's your name and then what you were guilty of. And at this moment, they just put Jesus, King of the Jews. They mocked him. They mocked his claim to be king. But here in this text, this morning in Luke 23, 39 through 43, we find that Jesus is, is, is crucified next to two criminals. Next to two criminals. Now, we might be under the impression that, that Rome was simply barbaric. And to a certain extent, Rome could be barbaric, but no more barbaric than a country like ours that mutilates children in the womb for no reason. They weren't any more barbaric. We're not any less barbaric. But we might think that Rome simply handed out crucifixions on the cross like candy. As that they were constantly putting people up on the cross. That it was a very common thing to just simply walk down the street and you just see people hanging on the cross constantly. However, friends, that is, that is not the case. You didn't just commit a single crime and then they put you up on the cross, whoever you are. It's just, that's just not the case. The cross was reserved for those that Rome wanted to make an example of. The cross was, was reserved for horrible criminals. The cross was reserved for insurrectionists, those that were viewed as the type of people that would want to overthrow Rome. The cross was reserved for revolutionaries. In fact, to be a Roman citizen, the odds of you ever being put on the cross were very low, almost near impossible. It was reserved for foreigners. It was reserved for slaves. The cross was a place of great shame. And needless to say, I'm telling you this because I want you to understand this this morning, that Jesus wasn't sitting there hanging next to model citizens. Jesus wasn't sitting there hanging next to basically good people who made a mistake. These were not moral men that Jesus was hanging next to. They were the types of men that society despised. 
And hear me, Christ in his sovereignty is identifying with the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. Christ did not come to die a private death where it was basically clean and good, but sufficient to satisfy God. Christ came to take the punishment of the most worst, vile, ugly, evil, God-hating people in the world. That is who he came for. You see that. And this is who he is identifying as. He's not just taking the punishment for basically good moral people who grew up in the church, went to a Christian school, and didn't really do anything that bad. Christ is identifying with the lawbreaker, the ultimate lawbreakers. And it is at this point we are introduced to this first criminal in verse 39. See, this, this criminal, he's, he's, hanging next to, he's hanging next to Christ. And as he's hanging there in his final breaths, he knows he's not getting down off of that cross. He knows it. There wasn't some DNA test that was going to come out to prove that he wasn't actually the one at the cross. When Rome crucified a man, they crucified a man. He did not come off the cross. If he was suffering and agonizing, that's the point. The cross was meant to make you suffer and die very slowly. If they wanted to give you a dignified death, they would chop off your head. This was meant to be slow and agonizing. And is the, is, as this criminal is experiencing quite possibly the, the largest amount of pain that the human body could endure, in his last moments of his life, what does he spend it doing? Verse 39 tells us. It says this, that one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. Now, now, now in, in, the, in the Greek, this, this, this term railed, it, it means he, he blasphemed. He was blaspheming Jesus. He was blaspheming him. He was making fun of him. He was, he was mocking him. In, in a very mocking manner, this criminal was saying, are you not the Christ? Save, save yourself and save us. I mean, consider, friends, the depravity of such a man. Consider it for a moment. The, the depravity of such a man who, who in his last breaths is sitting here mocking another man being crucified right next to him. You see, friends, this, this moment, there was, there, we just realized that, this, that there's, there's, no, there's no dignity at all for, 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 for Christ on the cross. There's not a moment, a minute, a second of dignity for Christ. You know, we, we, sing, we sing this song. We'll probably sing it in a few weeks, maybe next week, I don't know. How low was our Redeemer brought? To raise us from our shame. We singing that soon, Cam? When you, when you think about how low was our Redeemer brought to raise us from our shame, I want you to think of this moment. Where Christ is abandoned and he's being crucified on a, cr on a cross next to the scumbag 
criminal who's looking at him and mocking him. Oh, how low Christ was brought to raise us from our shame. He was brought so low that even a guilty criminal being crucified next to Christ stuck up his nose at Christ in his final moments. You see, one must, one must believe as he's saying this, as he's, as he's saying, are you not the Christ? Are you not the Christos? Are you not the Messiah? You see, one must believe that, that this, this man, he had some theological knowledge. He had some. It's evident because he understood the kind of the correlation between, between the Christ and saving, or Christ and redeeming. There, there's an element here that, I'm not saying that he had like, you know, his PhD in theology or something, but there's an element here that this criminal had some sort of theological connection between, between the Messiah and be- between redemption. However, his theological knowledge, it was insufficient to save him. You see, this man here, he had no love for Jesus. He had no respect for Jesus. He had no honor for Jesus. He had no faith in Jesus. He knew he could articulate some notions about some vague Messiah and connect it with with redemption. However, he did not know the true Messiah. Friend, this morning, that might be you. You might have some vague notions of what the Bible says about certain things, what the Bible might say about right and wrong, what the Bible says about Jesus being crucified and and, and raising again on the third day. You might have some notion about that, friend. But this morning, may I ask you this? Have you trusted in Christ? I'm I'm asking, can you recite specific theological truths? I'm asking, do you love Jesus? Have you submitted to Christ? Have you bowed your knee to him? Do you worship him? Is all your faith and all your hope and all your joy found in Christ alone, friend? If not, then my friend, you are not what the Bible calls a Christian. You're a theologian. As the great R.C. Sproul says, everyone is a theologian. Everyone is a theologian. Everyone has an opinion about God. Christ doesn't save theologians. Christ saves repentant sinners. Yet, in the midst of his being wise in his own eyes, he looks at Christ, and the irony here is he still demands to be saved. Save yourself and save us. Save us. What are you doing, bro? I'm looking at you. You're claiming to be this Messiah. Save me. Save me. Come on. Are you kidding me? Do you see the, 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 just the entitlement? The sheer nerve of this man. And, and you had to be thinking, that Christ had to be thinking. He doesn't say this, but you had to be thinking, like, this, like, this is what I'm doing. I am saving people through what I'm doing right now. But in the moment, Phil Riken wisely notes this. This criminal was demanding to be saved on his own terms. Uh, I can be saved. I won't bow the knee to the Messiah. I won't trust in the Messiah. I won't hope in the Messiah. I won't put my faith alone in the Messiah. I can stand here self-righteously on this cross just simply demanding to be saved. He demanded to be saved on his own terms. 
Now, this was an unbeliever. However, friends, how many of us are Christians? And I know this room is full of Christians. This room is full of people who have trusted in Christ alone for salvation. But how many of us in the Christian life, in our Christian walk, constantly come to Jesus on our own terms? How many? You know, we come to Christ demanding that he give us what we want. You know, it's very evident when we consider the things that we pray for. Consider the things that you've prayed for this week. Consider the things you've prayed for for the past few seasons. Jesus, heal so and so. Heal them. Jesus, provide this for me. Jesus, change my circumstances. And the list goes on and on and on. Our prayer life is nothing but a a giant list of demands that we have from Jesus. No affection for Jesus. No trust in Jesus. No trust in His sovereign plan. Just, Jesus, do what I say. And do it now. Rather than... Jesus, change my heart. In the midst of my circumstances, Jesus, change my heart. Give me love for you, Jesus, in the midst of my circumstances. Jesus, give me faith in the midst of my circumstances. Jesus, give me delight in you in my circumstances. Jesus, be glorified in my hard circumstances, Jesus. Jesus, in my hard circumstances, let me suffer Faithfully, Jesus. Let me walk righteously, Jesus. So that you would be glorified, Jesus. No, it is interesting, friends, that our prayers often indicate that our biggest desire in life is that Jesus would be a genie in a bottle who meets our every demand. Now, as I, as I consider this, this man here, This man who on his dying breath is doing nothing but blaspheming Christ. I I, I really, I gaze upon scripture and I can't think that there's a more depraved man in the entire Bible. I, I feel like this guy is the absolute biggest scumbag there is in the Bible. It is the pit of depravity. It is vile and evil and ugly and sinister and rebellious. But yet this man here, friends, is a part, is, is part of, of a picture of what we look like. Apart from the grace of God. Apart from Christ, friends, we are all nothing but guilty sinners hurling insults at God as we await the moment where there is no more breath in our lungs. Apart from Christ in our lives, we shake our fists at God. In fact, before Christ, that's what Ephesians 2 says we all were. We were enemies before God. We were not indifferent to God. As Dad always says, that we were God-haters and we were self-lovers. In fact, again, friends, this morning, if you are not in Christ, if you are not a Christian, you might be sitting here wondering what this is all about. 
I must say that you were not indifferent to God. You were an enemy of God. And your heart is rebellious towards God. But yet, again, this room is full of Christians. And yet, we must admit that even those of us who are in Christ, we can mock Christ at times. We can mock him. You see, friends, we mock Christ's sufficiency to save when we succumb to works righteousness. When we say, I've got to do this in order to be right with God. I've got to not do this in order to be right with God. You know, yeah, it's, it's faith alone, but, but I've also got to do X, Y, Z in order to be made right with God. I, you know, I've got to give enough. I, I've, I've got to not drink. I've got to wear the certain clothing or, or, or whatever that is or, or vote a certain way. See, we mock Christ. We make a mockery of him when we succumb to works righteousness. We mock Christ's sovereignty when we complain about our lives. God, surely this isn't your will for my life. I'm mocking you. Because I'm angry at you and I'm mocking at you. I'm shaking my fist at you because a sovereign God who loves me wouldn't do this to me. We mock Christ's majesty when we refuse to obey him. We mock Christ's worth when we seek to satisfy our deepest desires in anything else but Him. We can find our, we should try to find our status and our worth and our joy in our jobs or our marriage or Instagram or our children or our clothing or, or, or whatever that is. But understand this, Christian, when we do that, we are mocking King Jesus. He is meant to be our greatest delight, He is meant to be our greatest hope. He is meant to be the thing that we honor the most in our entire lives. So we think through these, these struggles in the Christian life. I know this is something we all struggle with. I was talking with my wife and I was just like, this is, this is something I struggle with. This isn't something I'm coming down on you. Like, it's hard. The Christian life is hard. So as we think through these struggles with loving, honoring, trusting, and hoping in God in the Christian life, I want us to hear something, church, Real quick, it's this, that this isn't a solo pursuit. Okay? This isn't just, you, you know, you need to white knuckle grip it and just, and just try it harder. You weren't meant to do life alone. This is a corporate pursuit. This is a corporate pursuit. How easy is it for our friendships to be centered around being critical? How easy is it for our friendships to be centered around being divisive? How easy is it for our friendships to be centered around being ungrateful or being fearful? Instead, we should be encouraging each other to trust God more. We should be encouraging each other to love God more. We should be encouraging others to, to worship God more. These topics should be the focus of our prayers for one another and our conversations to one another. How easy is it to simply hop on the grumble train? However, we must remember that our grumbling is never against our circumstances. It is always against God. May we encourage one another in the midst of the hard things of life and our hard heart postures to love Christ and to trust Christ and to pray for that in each other's lives. Two, Christ invites us to see him as he is and respond accordingly. Christ invites us to see him as he is and to respond accordingly. That being repentance and faith. As we read in, in verses 40 through 
41, we, we, I, I can't help but think this next interaction between, between the second criminal on the cross and Jesus, it's astounding. It's astounding to me for a variety of reasons. First, if, if you go back and read the, the account of Christ's crucifixion in, in Mark 15, 32, we see this, that both criminals were actually railing at Jesus. Both criminals. Both criminals at that point, at some point on the cross, one point on the cross, they were both mocking Jesus. They both mocked Christ. And so here we see in Luke's account, it doesn't mention the mocking of this second criminal. It only mentions his, his repentance, really. And so there was something that happened to the second criminal. Something happened here. Something happened on the cross as he's crucified next to Christ and, 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 and he's looking and he's hearing the things that he's saying. And he's, he's, I, but the text, doesn't, the text doesn't exactly explicitly mention it. So I, I don't want to know what it was that was said or, or what he saw. I don't know. But I know this. I know that, that, that John 1, in John 1, Verses 9 through 13, it says this, the true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone was coming to the world. That's what we celebrate during the Christmas season. Is that, is that he was in the world, that he came and he, and he put on flesh and he dwelt among us and, and the world was made through him, that he created all this by speaking it. And, and, and as he stood on his creation in this flesh that, that he put on, it says in First John 9, or in John 1, uh, 10, that the world did not know him. By and large, it did not recognize him as, as Messiah. He came to his own. He came to, to those who should have recognized him, the Jews who, who had the law and had the prophets. They should have recognized him, but his people didn't receive him. But this beautiful truth in John 1, 12, it says this, but to all who did receive him, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, that is, who believed that he is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah. He just believed in him. He gave the right. He gave them the right. Not through works, not through payment, not through earning it, not through military conquest. It's belief. He gave the right to become children of God. And here's the, here's the key. John 1, 13, who were born, not of blood. You weren't born into this. You weren't born in the right family. You weren't, you know, just because you're born in a Christian family doesn't mean that you're a child of God. You weren't, you weren't born, not of blood, nor of, of the will of the flesh. You, you, didn't, you didn't gain it. You didn't earn it. I already said that. But here, not of the will of man. This, this guy who was like railing against Jesus a moment ago, something happened according to scripture that like the will of God changed his heart. The will of God gave this man a heart to treasure, this guy being crucified next to him. The will of God gave this man eyes to see him as he is, not someone who is, who is simply being defeated, but someone who is worthy of worship. How do we know? Because John 1.13 says, not of the will of man, but of God. And, and, and the reality is that, that this is true of everyone who comes to Christ. Whether you grew up in the Christian family, went to the Christian school, went, went to seminary, or a part of this church, you went to a revival 
and you got saved when you were 15 years old. This is true of everyone, that everyone who trusts in him is because of God's sovereign work in their heart of giving them new eyes to see and giving them a heart to believe. That, that salvation is nothing but, but, but from God alone. It is God's sovereign act and God's sovereign will in a hardened heart to change us, to, to make us love Christ. That is what happened. That is what happened. And so at this point, as this, this criminal, he, he begins to see Christ as he is. This other, this, this criminal over here, he, he sees the folly of this other blaspheming criminal. And therefore he rebukes him sharply. He rebukes him. He's like, this is, he begins to see things clearly. And this is absolutely foolish. Because we're all about to die here. Yeah, see that. All three of us, we're, we're like, we're not coming off this cross. This is, this is crazy. Our life is about to be over. And, and I'm sitting here and I'm looking at you and you won't stop. And I'm not standing here thinking I'm any better than you because I'm realizing that we're all guilty. We're all getting what we deserve. I'm not better than you, but I'm looking at this point, brother. You have no fear of God. You're about to die. And you have no fear of God. Friends, do you ever wonder what, 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 you would, what you're going to be thinking about on your last day? Do you, do you ever wonder what, what you think, what, what, what the room will look like on your last day as you breathe your dying breath, the thoughts that will be on your mind, the hope that is in your heart, do you think about it? There's something when we think about our deathbed that, that, that for Christians it's a sobering moment. You know, I did talk to, 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 to Jim. I said this at the funeral a few weeks ago. I talked to Jim a few months ago as, as he asked me to sing Victory in Jesus at his, at his sermon or at his, at his funeral. And you know what was on, as, as Jim kind of knew that those days were coming, you know what Jim was thinking about? The victory that is in his works. No. The victory that is in Jesus. But look at this man here who's not in Christ. No fear of God. No fear. You know, it's at that moment where, where you might think, you might, you might be tempted to think of this. You think of the person that you know that needs Christ. And, and your heart is burdened for them, and your heart is concerned for them. You, you might be tempted to think this, that that sinner needs a wake-up call. You know, that, that sinner, you know, I, I pray, Lord, do whatever it takes. You might think they just need cancer. Give them cancer because that might scare them into, into following Christ. Lord, allow them to, to lose it all so that they would come to follow Christ. Or maybe perhaps a, a near-death experience would cause someone to finally trust in Christ. However, we must understand this. Apart from the sovereign work of God, the lost don't fear God. And earthly circumstances will not change that. They don't need more suffering in their lives. They need a new heart. And in calling this blaspheming criminal to fear God, it is clear that this other criminal, he did fear God. He understood his condemned state. He knew the consequences of his sin. He was guilty and he stood condemned. He was getting the punishment that was due him. 
He feared the Lord because he knew that he deserved far more than an earthly death. He deserved the wrath of God. And as he stood on the cross, he contemplated that. Yet, friends, in his sin, he also recognized this, that the one crucified next to him did nothing wrong. He gazed upon this person to his right or to his left, I don't know, but he gazed upon him and he realized that this one crucified next to him did not deserve it. The one crucified next to him was righteous. The one crucified next to him was good. The one crucified next to him was worthy of praise. He was a righteous man. He was not being put to death for anything that he had done. He was recognizing that this guy is who he says he is. And, and in, in, in response, as criminally says this, he says, Jesus, Savior, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. This criminal, he, he hangs there next to Jesus and he only knows two things. He knows two things. He knows this. He knows that he hangs there guilty before God. He knows his guilt. And he also knows this, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He confesses his sin. He confesses his guilt. He repents. But this vile man couldn't do anything about his current state. His death was minutes away. The only thing that he could do was appeal to the grace of God. That's it. In his helpless state, he appeals to the grace of God. All he can do is utter the words, remember me. Remember me. This, this is such a beautiful picture. Because maybe you're of the background that you say, yeah, like the, the cross did something for me that, that it can somehow create faith in me, but it, it, I know I recognize that guilty heart and maybe, maybe the, the cross, what it does is it, is it makes a way for me to actually make things right before God. That it changes me enough so that I can, I can get the ball across the finish line. You know, the cross, what it does is, is it hands me the ball and I take the ball and I run the rest of the way. I, I, I've got to make penance for my sin. Do we, do we see this here, friends? This man couldn't do anything. He couldn't join a church. He couldn't do good works. He couldn't give money to the poor. He couldn't vote a certain way. He was almost dead. I'm not sure that this man, as he stood here, he didn't have a giant depth of theological knowledge even. He knew enough. He may have not known the extent of the atonement, but he knew this. He knew who Jesus was. And he believed in him. 
You see, this story of the criminal on the cross, it should remind us that our salvation from start to finish is this. It's nothing but a work of Christ alone. From start to finish, it is all a work of Christ alone. How often do we forget this fact, though? Again, as as Christians, if you're like me, it can be so easy to doubt your salvation. And typically, the reason we do that, the reason we doubt our salvation is because we have our eyes fixed on our works. We have our eyes fixed on the things that we do and the things that we don't do. He said, as long as you fix your eyes on yourself, you will always have reason to doubt. That's the natural response. But friends, when we fix our eyes on Jesus and we meditate upon the fact that Christ's atoning death and sacrifice for us was sufficient, fully sufficient, paid once and for all to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. And we gaze upon the sufficiency of Christ on the cross. We have ultimate confidence. Today, Christian, are you struggling with your faith? Gaze upon Christ. It can be tempting to say, just stop doing bad things. Sure, you should. You should repent. But gaze upon Christ and the desire to repent will come. Point three. Even the most vile sinner who trusts in Christ alone will be saved. Even the most vile sinner who trusts in Christ alone will be saved. This is amazing to me. We have these two men. These two men here who did everything wrong that the world had to offer. They're the most vile criminals. They did not follow the law of God, they were lawbreakers. They were guilty. This is the worst. Whoever you can think about, I'm not going to give you an example. It might even be you. You're looking at this and you're thinking like, this, this guy, these guys screwed up in every possible way they could have. So much that they got capital punishment. They never had a chance to make things right. Never had a chance to apologize to their family. Never had a chance to, to, to recount what they did. Recount what they did. They're put up on the cross ready to die. And somehow in this scenario, you got two guys here. One one guy that just keeps his hard heart, continues to reject and rebel against God. You've got this other guy who simply sees Christ and responds in repentance and faith in these last moments of his life. And as Jesus is suffering and feeling the complete weight of the world's sin on his shoulders, Jesus responds to this man. 
He responds to this man. Jesus did not ignore the man. Jesus did not say, leave me alone, I'm suffering, I'm doing something important here. Even at Christ's lowest moment of his life, Christ responds to this vile man pleading for mercy. And he says the most beautiful words written in this passage. He says, truly, I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. I mean, when we think of these words, I, I briefly in our time left, I, I just, I just want to go through this quickly. There's just such a level of depth here. What Jesus says that is, is so beautiful and worthy of praise, worthy of confidence in the Christian life so that we can walk and have hope and joy. Do you, ever, do you ever wonder, Christian, do you ever wonder what happens when you die? If you're in Christ, what happens when you die? We get a, in a very simple statement, we get a picture here. When, when your body is, is lifeless and, we, and you're buried in the ground, what happens to your soul? Well, Jesus says this, he says today. He tells this criminal that was being crucified to his side, he says, today, signifying a time. You know, although there was this moment of suffering that this criminal was experiencing, and he was about to experience his death, he's about to breathe out his last breath from his lungs. Everything was about to change for him that day. That day. When he died, his soul would go to be with Jesus. That day, that day, he would go to be with the Lord. He would not go to purgatory to pay off his sins. He would not go to soul sleep. He would go to be with Jesus. We see this in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 9. Paul writes this, he says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body. He'd rather die. And what? And be at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Friends, when, our, when we die, we go, our, our, our souls, we go to be with Jesus. We do await a day called the resurrection when we will be given like new bodies. New bodies. Real, tangible, glorified bodies. You know, those, those bodies that die from cancer and they're, and they're just shriveled up and they're not who they were. There's even old, old, older people who, 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 who die just in old age and then their body wasn't what it was when they're 25. Friends, we get a new body. A glorified body. A sinless body. But until then, we still get to go be with Jesus. He says, today. Today. And then he says, You. You, 
You, signifying a person, an individual. In that moment, that man, that individual, he, the promise to him, he would be with Jesus. An individual. This is true of anyone who is in Christ. Yes, we we collectively are the bride of Christ, but you, individual Christian, you will be saved. John writing in in Revelation as he speaks of of the new Jerusalem in in Revelation 21-27. What awaits all of us, we read, but nothing unclean will ever enter the new Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Friends, if you are in Christ, your name is written in a book. And if your name is written in that book, your name cannot be removed from that book. If you are in that book, you are safe and secure for all of eternity. This is not a football team that you can be kicked off of. This is not a job you can be fired of. This is not a family who they can kick you out of. Your name is written in the blood of Christ. And there were no refunds. If you are in Christ... You were with him. You're his son. You were with with God's son forever. You're his daughter forever and ever. We also see this in John 6, 37 through 40. It says this. Jesus says, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You'll find that moment in the Christian life where you think you might lose your salvation. Dear friends, let me assure you, based upon multiple times in the word of God, you will not, if you are in Christ, you will never be lost. And it's not because you live a life good enough to not be lost. It's because Christ has a very good grip. That's why. You are bought out of the slave market. By his sovereign will, you individually, Christian, not some unnamed collective group, a group of individuals. Jesus is today marking a time, you marking a person, and he has a promise you will be with me. This man, he would not go on to some generic afterlife. He would not go on to some cloud where he, where he will play a harp and, and it will just be waiting for some endless bliss of who knows what. He would be with Jesus. He would be with Jesus. Do, 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 you, get, do you get how exciting this is? Guilty. In a few moments, he's with Jesus. Can can you, I mean, mean, you get this, you get this, okay? But consider your life and the things that you're going through right now, Christian. Can we admit this world stinks? It stinks. Life is hard. There's suffering and there's sin and there's trials, there's disappointments. We get to be with Jesus. 
We really do. Like at the end of this life, there's the best thing possible that we are with Christ. Oh, how that should motivate us. It motivated Paul. I see it. I see Paul in Philippians 1, 18 through 23 as Paul's considering his life. And he says this, yes, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, his, his suffering, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. But that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live this life is good. If you're in Christ, as you walk by the power of the Spirit, it is good. It is a good thing. Oh, but Paul says, mature Paul. I hope to be, if God made me half as mature as Paul someday, one of the most mature men in the Bible, he says this, to die is gain. You ever want to try and Jesus juke somebody and say, well, this life's pretty good. We shouldn't think about eternity. Bull. Paul said, to die is gain. Better than your family, better than your job, better than this church, better than health. To die is gain. And Paul says this, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. But my desire is to depart and be with Christ. For it is far better. Far better. Christ says this. He says time, today signifying a time. He says you signifying a person. He says will be with me signifying a promise. And then he says in paradise signifying a place. You see, paradise wasn't just an add-on to the sentence. It's the most important part of the sentence. Because of what it signifies. Because you can imagine what everyone would have thought about this naked, shameful man on the cross. Everyone looked upon that man who they saw as an insurrectionist, a criminal, as a false teacher. They would look at such a man, all the crowds, and this criminal right here, all gaze upon this man, and they look at him, and they think that he is on the way to Sheol. That's what they think. So for Christ to simply say, you will be with me. Well, of course, we look upon these criminals. We're all going to Sheol. No. Christ says that today you will be with me in paradise. Christ is making a, a, a victory claim here. He is claiming victory, that the cross is not a place of defeat where he will go to Sheol. Christ is making a victory claim that the cross is a place where he is bringing this man to his left and all those who trusted him into paradise by what he did on the cross. He is declaring cross, the cross a place of victory. And for those that are in Christ, it is also a place of victory for them as well. If you are in Christ, when we see cross, we think victory. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4, that, that where he's going it is, a, is a place of paradise. It gives us images back to the garden. It's what it gives us, it should give us in the Greek images of. 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4, Paul says this I know a man 
in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Verse 3, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He says it again. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. As much as I would like to expound upon paradise for you, Paul couldn't. I can't either. But I know this, that it's a place of victory where we will be with Jesus. And that's enough. Amen? But he also said, but we also read this in Revelation 2 through 4, 2, 4 through 7. To the words to the church at Ephesus, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. As we close, it's just amazing to consider how many beautiful and surprising truths are found in this short text. However, perhaps the most surprising is that this criminal found faith in Christ moments before he died. You see, friends, he, he experienced... He experienced the last second victory. He really did. It goes to show that our salvation is not based on our past. Our salvation isn't based on the right timing. You see, genuine dead, uh, deathbed faith is enough to save someone. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Friend, maybe you have walked a really, really, really long time without Christ. Oh, I want you just to gaze upon Christ this morning. Just ponder in your mind and in your heart the truths that were spoken of this morning. See the vile man that was on the cross who was given mercy, not because he earned it, but because Christ is a merciful Savior. Put your trust and hope in him today. Oh, but we look upon such a story and we, we tend to revel in it because we think it's sensational, because it's a last second victory. That might be what excites us about this text. Well, there's also a saying in sports, if you are a sports fan, and it is this, a win is a win. A win is a win. You see, in this last second victory, one might look at this man and say that he is the luckiest man who ever lived. He is so lucky. However, he is no luckier than any person who has ever professed faith in Christ. And while there are some plays, while there are some victories deemed miracles in the world of sports, some of them, friends, Every person who comes to faith in Christ is a miracle. Every last one of us. At the same time, it can be easy to sensationalize someone conversion, someone's conversion experience because 
You know, they, they came to Christ under the most extreme circumstances. They were brought out of the deepest sin or the most ugly lifestyle. And it can be easy to downplay our testimony because it wasn't very impressive. However, the, the, most, the absolute most gracious thing that God could ever do for you is to save you at a young age. The best life possible in this world is a life that spends decades walking with Jesus. This morning, if you've been a Christian for most of your life, give God thanks in your heart for his grace in your life. Friend, if you're considering rolling the dice this morning and continuing to walk in your sin and are thinking that maybe one day, maybe one day after you've done all that you want to do, maybe you'll bow the knee to Jesus. Maybe. You're making a risky proposition. You may never get the opportunity to trust in Christ. However, if you do, if you come to Christ later in life, you will live with a deep sense of longing, wishing you could take back the years that you refused to trust in him. I'm not talking about condemnation. I'm talking about just godly sorrow. Regardless, if you are in Christ, you will be with Jesus in paradise one day. It will be a glorious day. Let me close with words of this hymn. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Amen.